In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. The Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness and he remained there for forty days and was tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts and the angels looked after him. After John had been arrested, Jesus went into Galilee. There he proclaimed the good news from God. The time has come, he said, and the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Now, you may have spotted that the second part of the gospel that we're given in the liturgy, we've already done earlier in the year, because the temptation of Jesus in Mark is literally two sentences. There is nothing to it compared with Luke and Matthew, which go on forever with the three temptations and, and the whole dialogue with Satan and all of that. Mark is very, very short. So then we have this first preaching of Jesus. The time has come, the kingdom of God is close at hand. We've heard this before, but this is so fitting to hear it again. Repent and believe the good news. This is Lent. This is the time of repentance. This is the time of conversion, a time of renewal of faith. And Lent, especially in the light of the celebration of Easter in 40 days, where we are renewing, we are preparing ourselves to renew our baptismal promises. We are preparing ourselves to rekindle our Christian life and receive the grace of, of Christ of Easter, the new life of Easter, by, by making the way for him into our hearts and, and turning back to him. So that's the whole movement of Lent is in the perspective of Easter. It's a preparation for the coming of the Lord in glory at Easter. So here it is for us. It's good to hear those words. But tonight we're going to concentrate on the temptations as well. So where are we? We're in, in chapter one of Mark. We haven't left chapter one from uh, the beginning of the year. And there is so much in that chapter one, but it's so brief and, and succinct. So we're in the wilderness. The Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. So that's uh, the wilderness of Judea, because then he went into Galilee. The wilderness around the spot where Jesus was baptized, because just before that passage, Jesus is baptized. In Mark 1, 9 to 11, these are the, the verses just before in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased. So 
just before the temptation, we have the Holy Spirit coming upon him like a dove, the voice of the Father, and immediately the Spirit draws him in the wilderness. So he doesn't leave. The Spirit just stays and drives Jesus out into the wilderness. In the other gospel, we have a sense that Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted. And he remained there for 40 days and was tempted by Satan in Mark, but is he going in the wilderness to be tempted? This is not so clear in that sentence. This is a place of temptation, absolutely. But it's also a place of encounter with God. And, and as we will see from the Old Testament, it's very clear that the wilderness is a, 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 a place of um, withdrawal and encounter with God, which is exactly the call of land for us. We have still in two sentences a whole lot of um, sort of beings uh, listed. We have the Spirit, so the God the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus, fully God, fully man. We have Satan, who is an angel. We have the wild beasts, so the animals, and we have the angels. The whole of creation is in there. In, in that one sentence, he was with the wild beasts and the angels looked after him. So those two sentences have the whole of created reality and even contain as well the uncreated God, namely the Spirit and the Son in Jesus. So we have a whole lot of beings together. And this is very interesting because the wilderness is peopled. There's a lot going on in this wilderness. It's not a place of solitude. Um, you have the Spirit, Jesus, Satan, the wild beasts, and the angels. And in fact, just jumping ahead a little bit, this may well be what we find in our own wilderness, that solitude, emptiness in the Christian sense is never, um, is never lonely. Is never lonely. In fact, it's a it's a a place of always a place of encounter with the Lord, but also with all sorts of other things that come up. And trying to escape the wilderness, trying to escape that place of encounter, uh, can actually be lonely. So, the great paradox here: a, a wilderness filled with everyone. And this is for 40 days. Now we have a classic 40 days. It will remind us of all sorts of things in the Old Testament. And why is Jesus tempted? Why is Jesus tempted? Does he need to be tempted? Does he need to prove anything? Um, he can't sin. So he's not tempted for himself. He's tempted for us. He's tempted for us. He suffers for us. And he manifests in himself human nature as it should be. And he, in himself, human nature becomes at last victorious over all the obstacles that normally bring us down from the beginning since the first sin. We've never managed to resist temptation. And here for the first time, Jesus in his humanity, is victorious and is victorious for us. Not for himself, because he's already victorious, but for us. 
So to show us something and also to, to begin for us a process of transformation of, of human nature in him. So let's go back to all these words that we find in those two sentences that will call to mind all sorts of things. So first of all, it's the wilderness and it's 40 days and it's temptation. So that means for us, the wilderness, 40 days, tempted by Satan. That means for us all sorts of things. Exodus 15, Moses leads Israel into the wilderness and there's no water, and they're, they're tempted. This is the temptation of Mara, the, the temptation of Meribah, where Moses is put to the test, as it were, do we trust God to provide in the wilderness? Do we trust God? And the, the wilderness is constantly, through the whole of the Exodus, the place of temptation, because it's the place where we have nothing but God to rely on, and the temptation is always to give up, to stop believing that God will actually provide for us. That wilderness is a place where we have no one but God to rely on, and yet will he provide what we need. It's always a temptation to grumble, to disobey, to distrust the word of God. We find that in the wilderness, actually, it is also the place not just of temptation, but the place of providence, the place where God provides everything for his people. So from Exodus 15, with the grumbling and the temptation and the call to obedience, we have Exodus 16:35, and the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years, and they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness equal the 40 years of Moses and the Israelites in the desert. So Jesus recapitulates in himself the whole of the history of Israel. He lives it, he experiences it successfully this time without the grumbling and without the disobeying. And just as God had provided manna in the desert for the Israelites, so God is, provides in the wilderness for Jesus, the angels looked after him. The angels serve him. This angels looking after him is a reminder that, yes, like the Israelites, he does not want for anything. He has everything he needs. But also that he's being looked after, or rather the word is he's being served by the angels. And the service is one that is due to God. So we see in just these two sentences, that the divinity of Christ is ab absolutely evident here. The angels serve him. The words serve, to serve for the angels, used for the angels, is a word that means worship. The angels serve God day and night in the heavenly sanctuary. The angels behold the face of God and serve him and worship him. So we have those sentences that filled the Psalms, the worship, the service of the angels. And now we have it where the angels look after and serve God, but in our humanity, they serve a man, Jesus. And so 
this is a little hint of his divinity, but also a recapitulation of the desert experience in the wilderness. The desert is a place of encounter with God. So we have it in Jeremiah 2, 1 to 6, um, where Jeremiah tries to remind Israel of, of her wonderful past as the chosen bride of God. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. This is the Exodus, in a land not sown. And so that first love of the wilderness is precisely what we're called to in land. And perhaps in, in Mark, this is a way for us to see that Jesus may have been driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit, not to be left alone there, but to seek God, to be with his Father. The Father has just spoken, this is my Son, the Beloved. The Spirit has come down upon him, and now he withdraws in the wilderness. Of course, it's going to be a place of temptation, but... Perhaps the temptation is precisely to come out of the wilderness to escape, for us it always is, to escape the face-to-face -face with God where we have nothing and no one but him. The wilderness, this empty place, which now is filled with the presence of God, with the, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, as it were. Uh, Jesus would be in communion with his Father in the wilderness. And in fact, in the other Gospels, he speaks the word of God uh, with such familiarity. He lives the word of God. He is the word of God. Now, that wilderness of encounter is a wilderness of fasting, of reordering everything to God. So that fast that Moses did for 40 days and 40 nights when he was on top of the mountain and received the tables of the law, the tables of the words of the covenant in Exodus 34, 27 to 29. Again, Jesus recapitulates. It's also the wilderness, the 40 days that Elijah was called to experience before he encountered the presence of God on Mount Horeb. So we have it in 1 Kings 19, 4 to 8. And verse 8, at the end, he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So this encounter with God through an abandoning, a dispossessing of ourselves, which was the vocation of Moses and Elijah especially, to make room for God so that when the word of God came, there was nothing else but the word of God to feed on, which is exactly what uh, uh, Jesus will answer Satan in uh, Matthew and Luke. Um, and it's the words we read in Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 7, that the word of God is the food, is the food that we live by. Here in Deuteronomy 8, 3, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. 
So the concern is not for the earthly food, it is for God, it is for the word of God. And in that concern, God provides. So Jesus recapitulates in that sense the whole of the history of Israel, really, of that beginning in the wilderness. He recapitulates the vocation of Moses, he recapitulates the prophetic vocation of Elijah, seeking God first, as it were, making oneself fully available to God, and in the process, overcoming every possible temptation. And, and the massive temptation would be to leave the wilderness and go back and, and give up. But no, he does not. So he was with the wild beasts and the angels looked after him. Now, this is interesting because immediately after this verse, we have this sentence, which is the first thing that Jesus says in Mark, it's the first thing that Jesus really says in his preaching, the time has come. The time has come is, is not a great translation. It's really much more the time is fulfilled, the time is accomplished. What does that mean? Uh, it's the fullness of time, if you want. It's This is it. Now is the time. Now is the moment that everything before, every time before has been leading towards the time is fulfilled can be understood in the light of of that of those two sentences that everything that has happened before to Israel has led to this moment the time is fulfilled what Moses was waiting for what Elijah was waiting for what Israel was looking for in the desert this is it the kingdom of god is close at hand and in Jesus is the kingdom of god and here those two verses show to us what the kingdom of God is like. And it's a very strange way, but that's the way that we're given. So this, the kingdom of God is led by the Spirit. He drives Jesus out into the wilderness. So the, the one who's in charge here is, is the Holy Spirit. Jesus remains there 40 days, so those 40 holy days of encounter. He was tempted by Satan, well, of course, but then <laughs> in Mark... This is basically a footnote compared with the other Gospels. And in fact, Mark doesn't even bother to tell us that Jesus was victorious. It's so evident. There's, no, there's not even a need to tell us that Jesus conquered Satan, that Jesus came out victorious of the temptations. There's no account of the temptations. It's just he was tempted by Satan. Well, of course, he defeated him. Mark doesn't even say that. And he was with the wild beast and the angels looked after him. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus reigns over Satan. The spirit is in charge. He was with the wild beast. How is that possible? Normally the wild beast would be devouring him. This, this is danger. I mean, the, the, Satan is danger. The wild beasts are dangers. And the angels looked after him. Well, normally the angels are greater than a human person. So here we have really the kingdom of God. Everything is upside down. Satan is completely dismissed. The wild beasts are no threats. And the angels are at the service of humanity in Christ. Everything is upside down, but God reigns supreme. And in the wilderness, now the wilderness, of course, we have these echoes of the, the whole history of Israel, which I've talked about. 
but also the wilderness is something that was never intended uh, because the the humanity was intended to live in the garden at the beginning so we had this image of the garden at creation and a garden where everything was provided for and everything was in harmony and in order there would have been wild beasts but they wouldn't have been wild as in they wouldn't have been a danger they wouldn't have been a threat because death did not exist so that first those first two chapters of genesis giving us this image of creation as it was meant to be at the beginning in the beginning is a complete opposite of the wilderness and yet in that wilderness we see in those two verses that the experience of jesus in the wilderness is completely opposite to the experience that i would have in the wilderness First of all, I wouldn't stay in the wilderness because I would be tempted to leave the wilderness because I wouldn't last three days. Secondly, if I was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, I probably would collapse at the first hint of a temptation. Thirdly, if I had any encounter with any wild beasts in the wilderness, they would be eating me before I could run. And, and fourthly, I wouldn't claim to have any angels look after me. So is this all to do with Jesus being God? It's actually has to do perhaps with everything being reordered and recreated. And this is a language in which we discover that in Jesus Christ, everything is put right. Everything that we experience as not as it should be, the fact that Wild beasts are threats. Satan is more powerful than we are. The wilderness is a horrible place of hunger and thirst. These things that we experience, which are a result of sin, uh, which are a consequence of our sins. Now, for Jesus in his humanity, are not only uh, deprived of their capacity to harm, as it were, but they are made right. And they are they 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 become reordered, if you want, to the kingdom of God. That's why the kingdom of God is close at hand. Here is a hint. This is a completely abnormal situation, which is going to become the new normal in Christ, if you want. So everything is sort of recreated and reordered. The Holy Spirit is in charge. Satan, which has no claim to be um, on the same level. It's not a fight between good and evil that's proportionate. It's not, there's no hint that the outcome may possibly be on the side of Satan. This is utterly impossible and unimaginable. So that Mark doesn't even tell us that who won because it's just so obvious. So there's no equality whatsoever between the Holy Spirit, who is God, and Satan, who is a fallen angel. And everything else which is created, the wild beasts, the angels, find a place now which, uh, through the disorder of sins, they, they wouldn't have, if you want, in, in the created fallen world. 
it is ours. What about humanity? Well, humanity too is reordered in Jesus. And this is actually humanity is the one that's least mentioned, as it were, but it's the one that's the most present in Jesus. And humanity is completely recreated and reordered here, doing things that we normally can't do, but recreated and reordered to God. And so what the other Gospels express in terms of temptation, which is um, the temptations are always for Jesus to deviate from the will of God, but also to deviate from his humanity, to deviate from the God first, to remember the, the, the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is you shall worship the Lord your God, which is the last answer that Jesus gives Satan before he dismisses it and, and has a complete victory. Well, God first, God first is what happens in those two sentences. That's what Jesus does. And that's how everything then becomes reordered in, you know, not that it was disordered, but it becomes reordered for us. For him, it always was ordered. But now we see what humanity is meant to be like, if you want, in that desert. That, yes, there won't be any problems with the wild beasts. There won't be actually any problem with Satan. They won't, and the angels will be doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is to serve, because God is king, because God is first. And humanity in Jesus is then reordered to that first service of God, first worship of God. So there's a whole lot going on in those two sentences, as you can see. Now, we have the whole of creation and God, visible and invisible. This is very exciting because now we can move on to see that God in that text, so the Holy Spirit is in charge, absolutely in charge. And again, not at all on the same level. You know, God is the one who creates everything that is not him in this text. So God is the one who creates, well, Jesus is on humanity. Uh, so that's a little complicated, but Jesus in himself unites both divinity and humanity. And his humanity is created. It began to exist at his conception, at the Annunciation. And this is humanity as it should be. So we have humanity in Jesus. That's creator, creator. And so Jesus is both creator and created, if you want. But the spirit of Jesus out into the wilderness. The wilderness is the whole of creation affected by sin because it's not a garden anymore. It's a wilderness. So that's the whole of sort of uh, material uh, but inanimate creation or even you know, plants and everything, but um, non-animal. And then he was tempted by Satan. Satan represents, again, fallen creation, but invisible creation. So spiritual uh, beings, the angels. The wild beasts represent creation, uh, again, fallen because of the, they are wild. Wild in the sense of dangerous and a threat, as I said. But the beast, the animal creation, and the angel, spiritual, invisible creation. So the whole of creation is included in those two sentences. And God himself. And God is Lord of all of this and reorders all of it. Now, Jesus is untouched by evil. And this is the first time, really, that this is very interesting because 
In the Gospel of Mark, we begin the Gospel by the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then the baptism, um, it is after, right after his baptism that Jesus is led into the wilderness and is completely untouched by evil. Evil has no hold on him. This is, again, what the temptations of Jesus are trying to manifest for us. And so for the first time, or perhaps, I mean, Our Lady similarly is untouched by evil through the grace of Jesus, through the grace of Christ, uh, which is given to her, if you want, beforehand to prepare her, that grace of the Immaculate Conception. But in Jesus for the first time really manifested in that setup is humanity completely resistant to evil because that temptation of Jesus reminds us of the first temptation which was not in the wilderness but in a garden and where as soon as uh, Satan opened his mouth basically the serpent humanity fell here nothing happens Satan can talk all he wants so that's, I mean, yes, unaffected, uh, un completely um, immune to evil. And this is really a first for humanity. And this is something that we have when we're in, in him and stay in him, something that we're given and something that we're given again and again and again when we receive his forgiveness, this resistance to the power of evil, which he um, sort of shares with his body. And so you see for us how significant it is to be in the grace of Christ, to be in, in his church, to be his members, to remain faithful to him. Because he is the only one who is victorious over evil. We're not on our own, but in him we are. He manifests himself as the Lord of visible and invisible creation. But he is untouched by evil as in unaffected, but he suffers the consequence of it. And being tempted is not pleasant. <laughs> and he would have suffered. And as we see in the temptations in Luke and Matthew, there is a real hunger. After 40 days, he was hungry. So he experiences the limitations he experiences the consequence of sin in his body, even though he does not sin. And that he does for us. He does for us, and he is victorious for us. Now, with the human person, I think one of the things we need to really remember is to attach together the text that comes before, which is the baptism of the Lord and the temptation. They, are, they shouldn't be separated. They really shouldn't be separated. Why? Because just as Jesus is tempted for us, he's baptized for us. In his divinity, he does not need either baptism or temptation. They, they, he's the creator. He's, uh, but in his humanity, his baptism signifies what he does for us when we are baptized that we are incorporated into him, that we are adopted by the Father. And it is only as his baptized member that 
we find and we are given uh, experiences of the wilderness. And, and usually it comes pretty soon after baptism, but it comes every time, every stage of our Christian life, every time of growth in our Christian life, we find an experience of being led into the desert, as it were, sometimes very reluctantly through the trials uh, that can come our way from outward circumstances or inward circumstances, inward trials. We have all sorts of temptations, all sorts of experiences of the wilderness in our own Christian life and growth. And these are not pleasant. These are difficult. These are sometimes very, very painful. But these are opportunities of encounter and reordering and recreating. So if you want what the Lord does invisibly in us, this recreation, this reordering, this setting everything right, this purification in us is accomplished through his grace when he, when we are in this experience of, of the wilderness. Now, this is precisely the reason why we have Lent Lent is not a form of punishment, it's a form of penance. And penance is not punishment, but penance is a, is a very positive turning to God by disrobing ourselves of the clutter of everything that is a hindrance in our relationship with God, everything that distracts us from God. It's again making God first. So just as I was looking at those two verses and, and presenting how God reigns completely in those two verses, in the most unlikely circumstances, in that wilderness, which is marked by sin, because it's, wilderness was never intended. The, what was intended was a garden. The wilderness is a consequence of sin. And yet it's here in that place of desert and solitude that God actually acts. So this reordering to God so that in him, the wild beasts, now what could be those wild beasts spiritually? They could be the things that we submit ourselves to. You know, when, when we face a wild beast, beast we, we face a threat, we face a danger. And so we completely order our behavior in response to the wild beast. Now, the wild beasts classically have been used as an image of the passions that can completely overwhelm us. Now, passions are something we live with and they're neither good nor bad and they, they are part of what we are. And if we didn't have them, we'd be very very dead and very boring, but sometimes they overwhelm us and they lead us, you know, they, they control our behavior, they control what we do. Just as a wild beast would control what I would be doing, I would be running away without even thinking about it. But here, the Lord is in control in the desert. You know, the, the, the wild beasts were there and he's not worried about this. He was with the wild beast. Fine. He's in charge. He's not running away. He's not trying to save his life. They seem to be quite content with him. 
and he's quite content with them. So there's a sense of great peace, but also great priority that the wild beasts are not going to be determining my behavior. And this is again exactly what Lent is about. My passions, my passion for food, my passion for uh, social acceptance and, and social sort of praise, my passion for, for sleep, my passion for uh, comfort and looking after myself is not going to determine my life and my action. So, so these are you know, the, the passions, the appetites that we have. Uh, my emotions are not going to control my life. and Of course, I have emotions and they're absolutely part of my life. But the Lord is going to direct my life and I'm going to submit to him, not to what I feel and not to what... I'm not going to be obeying my passions. I'm going to make them obey the Lord if I can or rather, you know, subdue them so that I can be in control, so that the Lord can be in control. And, and that is precisely the discipline of Lent. And that's why it is painful, because when we let our passions loose, we are quite happy, but then we, we forget the Lord, and we very quickly end up in a bit of a mess. So it's the fight that we are called to, to lead, and the Lord is victorious in that fight. So again, the Lord alone can live in that wilderness with the wild beast and the angels that looked after him, not me. But in him, I can. Me alone, I can't. There's no way. But in him. So this, again, this passage is all about grace. This is humanity in Christ. Now, I, who have been baptized, I am in Christ. I am humanity in Christ with my brothers and sisters in the church. And so this opportunity, this grace of living like Jesus and of being victorious like Jesus is also given to me, provided I constantly remain in the humility of, of having him as, as the Lord of my life. The moment I think I can do it on my own, I collapse. It is him who is doing it in me as he wants, in the terms that he wants, when he wants. As for me, I will try my best to open my lives more and more and more to him so that he can be the Lord and not my passions, not my wild beasts. I hope that makes sense. So... This is what we mean by repentance. This is what we mean by penance. This turning back to have an order of which the Lord reigns supreme. And the order will be done. The reordering is done by the Lord. We don't need to worry about the reordering. All we need to, to worry about in the reordering is who's, a, who's in charge, who's in control. Because the, the one who is in control is the one who does the ordering or the disordering. And when we know that I'm in control, things pretty much become disordered. When the Lord is in control, when I humble myself and allow him to be in control. So, of course, now the life of prayer, prayer will be the most essential act of Lent because prayer will be me allowing the Lord 
to being controlled. It will be giving him the control and, and the, the, the ordering of my life, allowing him to put order into my life. And this is precisely this fight for prayer every day, this fighting for, all right, I'm going to take the time, I'm going to make the time, and to stay with that time even when it feels like nothing is happening and it feels like my life is getting worse and worse and it feels like, no, this is my wilderness, I have to stay in the wilderness. I, I think really the biggest temptation is to leave the wilderness and to, to, you know, because in the wilderness there is nothing but him and he's pretty silent and he's pretty invisible and we don't really feel anything and we are tempted to just give up and get back, take the control of our life back. So that's uh, the prayer. But then again, the fight carries on. The fight carries on and the, fast, the fasting is the fight against the wild beast, the passions, the wild beast of chocolate, the wild beast of, mm, I, I need that and I need this. And, and the Lord is not enough. The Lord is not enough. That's the wild beast. And then... The service of the angel, served by the angels. Now, the angels are greater, higher creatures than we are, infinitely higher than we are. And yet, when they serve Jesus, they also serve humanity. There is a sense in which, you know, classically in tradition, Satan is understood to have rebelled because he could not bear the idea that that at some point the angels of which he was the greatest would be serving humanity which is such a lower type of being because God became man there's a sort of a jealousy there and a sort of a pride I will not serve and in refusing to serve God really um, to obey God to obey the plan of God to obey God's um, he, he completely lost his own greatness. But here Jesus is served by angels, served by angels, yes, as God, but also as man. And this reminds us that, well, you know, the angels are spiritual beings. They are capable of, of uh, truth and love as we are. Uh, so they are capable of, of God they worship God, but the humility that they have in serving us is extraordinary. Um, and that's precisely, that's the angels who have not fallen. The, the, the fall of the angel is a fall of pride. The humility to serve, to do God's will. So yes, each one of us is, as it were, served by a guardian angel. We don't serve our guardian angel. Our guardian angel serves us. And in another way, you know, we, we honor Mary as queen of angels. She's just a human person. She's just a human being. And she's queen of angels. She's a lesser being than they are. And yet she reigns over them. So this great humility of the angels reminds us of the Lenten call of almsgiving. Because almsgiving is really putting someone's needs higher than my own. 
is looking at everyone as my brother and sister in need that I can serve. Being putting oneself at the service, not just of God, but of others as, you know, as my masters, as it were. They demand my love and care. I can put myself at their service with everything that I have and everything that I am. And so you have, even in, you know, the, the, the reordering of prayer, the wilderness is prayer. The wild beast is the fasting and the angels almsgiving. Now, I, this is a little twisted and perhaps you can uh, blame me for um, a bit of an extravagant reading of these two sentences. But in the spiritual sense, it, it does... It does actually make sense. Again, this, this life that we're called to live, that we're called to take on for Lent, this whole experience of wilderness, is not a life that we're live, living just for ourselves. It's an experience for the whole church, to experience as a whole in the church, in the communion of the church, what it means to be that new creation which is completely ordered to God, what it is to be the kingdom of God reordered through grace, what it is to be completely victorious over Satan. And an image of that would be the, the Noah's Ark. Now, Noah, the covenant with Noah will be the first reading on Sunday. It's a magnificent reading where, where God makes a covenant, not just with Noah, with, but with the beasts, with the animals. And so they come back in the gospel. So that's lovely. And here we have the, the ark with all the wild beasts and the nice little uh, gentle beasts. So you have the wolf and the lamb, the lion and the cow and the donkey. And that reminds us of Isaiah, of course, that when the Messiah comes, everything, you know, the, the, the wild beasts won't be eating uh, the, the little ones. This is a little image, that ark where all these animals live together, of this reordering, of this... Um, things as they should be, things uh, under the reign of God. And Noah here in the ark, so the ark representing is a, a great figure of the church, this victory over sin and death. Now the waters which covered, flooded the wicked earth represent death, which is the consequence of sin. And the ark is victorious over over the seas, over death. And the ark represents humanity victorious in Christ through the wood of his cross. And so you have the cross on the ark there uh, and, and the dove of the Holy Spirit, the dove of peace with the uh, ark of the covenant. But also uh, victorious through the obedience of Noah, who ended up, you know, obeying the word of God and building a boat in the middle of dry land, far from the sea. And by his obedience, by his humility, submission, re, you know, uh, became a source of salvation for the whole of creation, a, a real figure of Christ again. Now, it's, we're in this together. We're in this together and we're in this in Christ and so we have great, great hope because alone we are not victorious, but with 
Christ and in Christ, we are all united and we are all uh, victorious. And this victory is for us to claim this land, to make this land a wilderness where we meet the Lord Jesus every day, where we serve him in our brothers and sisters and where we are able to tame the wild beast of our passion so that we can receive his peace, so that we can receive in our own selves and in the church his kingdom.